This past Sunday, we, we read the church covenant before our business meeting. Brian read it, and we all read it together. And in the preamble of that covenant, it establishes our unique relationship that we as a church were committing as the people of God, as, as members of this local church, the, the commitments that we are making, the covenant that we are making. And so I actually wanted to read it this evening before we start our study because I think it's fitting to our study in biblical theology. So the preamble reads, God established a covenant relationship, first with his people Israel, and then a new covenant with his people the church. Therefore, as members of God's covenant family, known as the First Baptist Church of Fisherville, we commit ourselves to God and to one another to be Christ-like in our lives and relationships through the presence, guidance, and power of God's Holy Spirit. So, as members of Fisherville, anyone that is here a member of Fisherville, we have all signed on to that covenant when we became members of this church. And so in it, this covenant, we recognize that ultimately it's God that has established this covenantal relationship. And he did it by first establishing a covenantal relationship with Israel, by which God's blessings of the new covenant would ultimately be known, and establishes God as the covenant maker, and us as his new covenant people, who stand as recipients of the promises of Israel ultimately. In our church's covenant, we are now pledging ourselves to this local body, and as such, we're committing to certain stipulations. Stipulations for, for faithful Christian life, that we would be set apart, that we would live a certain way, a way that would exemplify the Christian walk, that we would live a way that honors God and follows His commands. And as the covenant states, there's stipulations for those that are covenantally unfaithful, for those that are unfaithful to the, the call that God has called us to as a church. And so even in our covenant, uh, it has stipulations for church discipline, that we do it in love, but that it is a necessary thing for those that are not walking in covenant faithfulness with our God. So anyone who has joined our church, like I said, they've committed to these things. And we recognize that ultimately our God is a God who has established his relationship with man through the covenantal framework. And that's why Throughout that preamble, we see covenant repeated multiple times as God's covenant with Israel, God's covenant with the New Testament church and the new covenant, and then our covenant with one another as a church. And so covenant relationship is crucial for our understanding of redemptive history, and that's something that we're recognizing even in our own covenant here at Fisherville. So tonight, as we continue our study in biblical theology, uh, we will continue to look at, at God's work, and as we do it, we're going to look at it through the covenantal framework. So last week, we defined biblical theology. We looked at some of the, the tools used in biblical theology and why biblical theology is important. I want to redefine biblical theology or, or just kind of go over it again for those of you that weren't here or need a reminder, but biblical theology is an attempt to unpack the redemptive, historical unfolding of Scripture. So it's looking at the, the meta-narrative of Scripture, the plan and purposes of God as, they, as they've been carried out throughout redemptive history. So it's looking at the plot, it's looking at the, the main purpose, the central theme of redemption, and carrying it through history. Looking at what the authors intended to write, looking at how the, the books of the Bible are actually connected, uh, and, and we look at the fulfillment in Christ ultimately, as we talked about last week, as, as we believe that the Old Testament and the promises made then, they climax in Christ. All of, all of Scripture points to Christ. And so that's what we'll be looking at in the coming weeks. We'll be unpacking that main storyline of redemptive history of Scripture. And we'll do so by looking at the covenantal framework, as, as I've made clear. As we're going to look at that as, as the backbone of Scripture. The covenants really do form this backbone of God's plan and purposes, and, and they, they carry the narrative. 
And so what I want to start with tonight is to define what a covenant is. Because for the biblical authors and, and, and in, in the time frame of when the Bible was written, a covenant was something that was very common to them, very, something that they would understand, that, that you could talk about a covenant without even using the covenant word, and they would understand that a covenant is being made. And so one definition I think is helpful is a covenant is a relationship involving oath-bound commitment. So again, relationship involving oath-bound commitment. So understanding that a covenant is a relationship between two parties, two or more parties. There's a relationship involved, and it's oath-bound. They're committing something to one another. They're, they're committing to one another to do whatever that covenant is stating. And we do things similar to covenants now. Uh, a contract would be something very, very similar to a covenant. A lot of people don't like comparing a contract and a covenant. There are definitely some dissimilarities, but there's a lot of similarity between a contract and a covenant. Recently, Amelia and I, we purchased a home, and we got a mortgage. And so a mortgage is a contract. We, we developed a relationship with a bank. Every month, I'm reminded of that relationship with that bank. And so certainly, a contract even is a relationship, that we have a relationship with one another, and there's stipulations to that contract, that I need to pay by a certain date, otherwise XYZ is what's going to occur, and if I continue to not pay, then there's, there's, in a sense, almost like a covenant, there will be curses that will become upon me, right? They could take away my home, I may have to file for bankruptcy, there's different things that may occur because I have not fulfilled my contract. Same thing when we purchased the home. I had to establish a relationship with the seller of that home. I made an offer, and me and Amelia and I made an offer, and, and we put in little stipulations of we want this, or maybe uh, we, we don't want this with the house. We want them to fix this before we move in, and we negotiate back and forth, and then we come to a conclusion and an agreement. And that's where I would say there are some dissimilarities between the biblical covenant and a contract, because in in this contract of buying a home, we had a lot of, of back and forth. We had a lot of, of negotiations along the way. And when you look at the biblical covenants, one thing you notice is that there is a sovereign God who makes a covenant with man. And as the sovereign, there's no negotiations going on there. He is saying this is the, rela- this is the grounds of the relationship that we will have. That if we are to have a relationship, this is the means by which I will have that relationship with you. And there's no negotiation. There's no negotiation on man's part. There's actually one commentary, a uh, very well-known commentary, that talks about the Mosaic Covenant. And as Moses is coming off the mountain with the tablets and he's about to, to bind the people to the law, that they're going to have this covenant ceremony, this commentator says that this was the worst decision that Israel made. Because what Israel should have done is says, no, we don't want to enter in this covenant. We want grace. We want the Abrahamic covenant. We don't want the Mosaic covenant. And that's literally what this commentary states. That's a false understanding of covenant because God isn't negotiating with Israel. He's saying, you are my people, and these are the grounds of our covenant. This is the grounds of our relationship with one another. So when he comes off that hill, he's already entered into relationship with them. He has saved them from Egypt. He's established them as his nation, and he's saying these are the stipulations, these are the rules by which you will live by. And as we'll see in our study, there's continuity between the Abrahamic covenant and the Mosaic. And so I hope to show that, that that that, that commentary has it completely wrong, that he doesn't understand that the Mosaic covenant is in line with Abrahamic covenant. It's also a covenant of God's redemptive grace. 
I think that Palmer Robertson, he has some additional light to shed on, on the covenant as he defines it as a bond in blood sovereignly administered. A bond in blood sovereignly administered. So he understands that the biblical covenants center around a sovereign God. The reality that there's a sovereign party involved. There's, there's a party that in a sense has more power than the other party. And you even see this in the Old Testament narratives. There's often times where, where one group will conquer another group. That group could easily kill everyone or enslave them, but oftentimes they will enter into a covenant relationship. But again, it's the conqueror that has the authority in this covenant relationship. It's the conqueror that sets the terms, and that other party is just, just grateful to be alive, to enter into this relationship of protection with that sovereign party. The other part of Palmer Robertson's definition that's helpful is he says it's a bond in blood. A bond in blood. So a bond is just like an oath, so it's a it's a blood-bound oath. And we see that throughout the Old Testament. We see that even with the New Covenant with Christ and His blood that is shed. And that's something that we'll watch carry through the Scriptures as we look at the covenants. But it's a bond in blood. And we see this most clearly in the Abrahamic Covenant. We're familiar with that. God has Abraham kill animals and split them in two, puts them on either side. And the typical framework that would happen in a covenant is both parties would walk through. They would both walk through, and what they're signifying is, is if we break this covenant, we will be like these animals on the left and the right. For those that break this covenant, they will have the covenantal curses come upon them, and it will be death. And so it's a blood-bound covenant, blood-bound oath is what Palmer Robertson describes. And like I said, Abraham is such a clear example of that, but we see that in, in the other covenants also. Moses in Deuteronomy, as he is renewing the covenant with the people, he sprinkles blood over the nation of Israel. Most likely it would have been very difficult to have the entire nation of Israel pass between the animals. And so a lot of people think that that's the reason why he was sprinkling blood upon the people. He was still binding them with blood unto this oath, reminding them that unfaithfulness to the promises and the, the commitments that we have made will lead to our death. And in the Hebrew, it's actually, to make a covenant is actually to cut a covenant. So again, this idea that, that to cut a covenant is the literal language that's used in the Old Testament, pointing to that, that blood bond that occurs in the covenantal setting. So one example of a covenant, obviously we're going to look at the main covenants, but another one that a lot of people wouldn't remember is Joshua 9. What happens in Joshua 9 is Israel has begun to execute God's judgment on the wicked nations. And so they're coming into Cana, and the Canaanite nations are, are assembling to, to battle against God's people. But one people group, the Gibeonites, they instead devise a cunning plan. They recognize that when the God of Israel shows up, that Israel will win. And they recognize this because in the text it even talks about the fact that they knew that God had freed them from Egypt. So the Gibeonites know. They've heard the message. They understand that Israel's God is powerful. And so what the Gibeonites do is they put on tattered clothes. They have this very, very elaborate scheme. They put on worn-out clothes. They, they bring worn-out wineskins, and they bring moldy, dried-up food to them. And so the Gibeonites come to the Israelite leadership, and they tell them that they're from a far-off land. And they're trying to convince them to come into some type of, of 
covenant relationship with them. And so the Gibeonites are pleading with them. We're from very far away. We're from way far away. You're never going to have to worry about having an issue with us because we're not even from around here. And they start showing them the, the clothing and the food and all this worn out stuff that they have. And Israel uh, begins to believe the story. Uh, but Joshua asks again, where are you from? It, it's like he's still trying to confirm this. And they again, they point to all their clothes, they point to all this food, and they say, we're from far away. And then the writer comments that they did not ask counsel from the Lord. They did not seek the Lord in this matter, but what they do is they make a covenant with the people. God had commanded them to destroy the, the, the nations in this land, but instead they make a covenant with the Gibeonites. So after the three-day ceremony that happens, Israel finds out, and the people are angry at the leadership. The, the people are ready to kill the Gibeonites. That's exactly what they want to do. Is they, want, they want to kill the Gibeonites as God had originally commanded to them to do. But what, they don't do it. Because they understand that if they are disobedient to the covenant, they understand what will come upon them. So they understand that to break a covenant is to break this blood-bound bond that they had made with the people. And the Gibeonites, they understand both the curses of a covenant and they understand the benefit of a covenant relationship, which is exactly why the Gibeonites come to do this. And so they recognize that their only hope is to bind themselves to Israel. Their only hope is to bind themselves to the people of God. And that's exactly what happens. And so it's a perfect example of a covenant and that even when Israel wants to kill them, they will be obedient to the covenant. And so it shows the importance of a covenant and how serious they understood the covenants. And so as we'll come to see through our study, we're going to watch the progression of the covenants. We're going to watch them build upon each other. And we'll see that ultimately it's God who will bind himself graciously to a people. It's God who will bind himself to Israel. And he'll even bind himself to the curses, as we'll see in Abraham. And so tonight we're going to talk about the Edemic covenant. And so I, I want to lay out though there's six covenants Six covenants that, that we're going to be highlighting in our study tonight. It's going to be the, the covenant with Adam. A good way of looking at that is the covenant of creation. Some scholars have called it a covenant of works. A lot of Christians don't like that term because of the idea of works-based. But the reality is, is, is Adam in the garden is, is really the, the, the one person of us that had that, that free choice that people like to think they have so much, but the reality is we all follow after Satan. But it's Adam who, who he had a covenant of obedience with God and he failed. And that's why he called it covenant of works. And then Noah, the covenant of preservation. We see God's common grace that he would not flood the earth again in the covenant of preservation with Noah. Abraham, we see the covenant of promise. Moses, the covenant of the law. And, and we'll talk about that and hopefully we'll talk about the law uh, in a manner that will be helpful, both practically uh, and understanding it as a gracious covenant, because I think a lot of times it's misunderstood. The Davidic covenant, the covenant of the kingdom. And that will also kind of go in correlation with Sunday morning, because Brian's just about to, to preach on 2 Samuel 7 shortly. And then the last, the sixth covenant that we'll discuss is the new covenant, the covenant of consummation, the covenant of Christ the consummation of all things. And again, what, what we're looking at in our study is that the, the new covenant is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament promises and covenants leading up to Christ and his work. So tonight, again, we're going to look at the covenant of creation. 
Now, the first thing I have to say is some people will disagree on whether or not the covenant with Adam is a covenant. The other five covenants typically are, are pretty unanimous among especially conservative scholars, uh, but the covenant with Adam, there is some debate there of, on whether it's a covenant or not. And obviously, I'm teaching it in a manner that I, I believe that it is a covenant. I do believe that God made a covenant with Adam. I think there's strong evidence for that, biblical evidence. Uh, first, we see a lot of the things that you would see in a covenant. Really, all of the main points of a covenant are there in the garden. So we see promise. We see obligations. And then we see binding curses upon the, the, the one that breaks this covenant. And those are, those are really the main parts of a covenant. And then to me, what's the most convincing is that the Bible refers to it as a covenant. And so in Hosea 6-7, Hosea writes, But they, speaking of Israel, they like Adam, so he likens Israel to Adam, and then he says they've transgressed the covenant. And so just like Adam transgressed the covenant in the garden, so is Israel now transgressing the covenant. And so in my eyes, Hosea is, is looking back on the covenant of creation and he's looking at it as a covenant. Then in 2 Samuel 7, I think this sheds light on the covenant with Adam because in 2 Samuel 7, covenant is not mentioned. And that's what most people's problem is in the garden is there's no, the covenant word is not mentioned. But it isn't mentioned in 2 Samuel 7 either with the Davidic covenant. But everyone thinks that's a covenant. And again, the biblical authors look back upon 2 Samuel 7 and refer to it as a covenant, just like Hosea does with Adam. So I think that we have sufficient evidence to be able to say that God formed a covenant with Adam in the garden. So whether, I will say ultimately though, whether one wants to call it a covenant or not, most will agree that the things that would be present in a covenant are there. And so whether we agree or not on whether it's a covenant, we're going to look at redemptive history similarly. And so we're going to look at the outworkings of the, the creation and fall account, and we're going to look at it very similarly, whether we want to use that word or not. So hopefully you can still not be troubled by that as we continue in our study. So creation. In creation, God establishes a unique relationship with man by the very fact that he creates man, and he does it in his likeness and image. There's something unique about God's creation of man compared to the rest of creation. We look at the rest of creation, that language is not used. And then there's a distinction in the calling of man, that they're to have dominion over the creation. There's clearly something different about man. And in God's creating man in such a manner, it already establishes God's relationship with man. And so if you will, let's open up to Genesis. Genesis chapter 2. We could spend the entire six weeks in Genesis, chapters 1 through 3, and still have a lot more to go through. So tonight we're trying to do it all in one evening. If someone will read Genesis chapter 2, verse 15 for me, please. So what are they called to do in the garden? To work it and keep it. What's interesting about these words is they're similar of the Levitical priesthood later on, and we see it throughout the scriptures. You can follow these words being used, and they relate to the, the priestly duties at the tabernacle. 
And so a lot of people recognize Eden as this tabernacle setting where they're literally dwelling with God. They're in God's presence, walking with God, and they're to tend to the land, to the animals, and care for God's creation. And so you can think of Adam in a sense of, of a priest, a king priest in the garden, in the tabernacle of God. So here is Adam in the tabernacle, in the, the place of God, and he is a king priest. But quickly, things change in the narrative. As we go to chapter 3, there's a major break in the narrative as you see verse 1 of chapter 3. So far, you've seen God acting. You've seen God working things out according to his plan. And then all of a sudden, the snake shows up. The way that this is structured in Hebrew would would quickly alert the reader into seeing that something's different about the snake. There's something different about the snake than the rest of the created order. Just like there was something different about man, there's clearly something different about this snake. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? So here comes the snake already challenging God's word. God had told them in verse 17 that they were not to eat of a certain tree. And what would happen if they ate of that certain tree? They would surely die. They would surely die. Hebrew doesn't really have a good word for surely, and so they'll repeat words. And so it's literally dying you will die. So with certainty you will die if you do this. And so in verse 1 of chapter 3, Satan comes along and begins to question that, questioning the word of God. God had commanded them not to eat of this tree. Disobedience to, I would say, the covenant that God made to them will lead to cursing, and that cursing will be death. So God places one tree in that garden, one tree to remind them that ultimately they are not God. There's a distinction. They are part of the created order. They are not God. And that tree would have been a reminder to them of this distinction between the creature and the creator. That was the only test God gave gave them. One test to show their submission to God, to show their obedience to the one true and living God who had just created them. So the question is, will the word of God be obeyed by man? Or will they disobey? So the narrative continues in verse 2, And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the tree in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. So she adds to what God commanded. Already, because of Satan's questioning, you can already see hints of the fact that that God's, God's command, God's law, seems to be overly burdensome in her eyes. That now she's saying, We can't. We can't even touch it. And then verse 4 continues, But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. So first Satan questions God's word. Then Satan goes on to deny it outright. You will not surely die. And then in verse 5, For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Again, that temptation that they could be like God, that that distinction between creator and creature could be wiped away. And then in verses 6 through 7, we see the failure. We see that they fail to live by God's word alone. 
In verse 6, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Adam was there the whole time. Adam had been called to tend to the garden. He was to have dominion over the garden. He should have kicked that snake out of the garden. He should have protected his wife. Instead, he fails, and then he eats of the fruit, and their eyes were opened. When we look at chapter 2, verse 25, it reads, And the man and the wife were both naked and not ashamed. So they were intended to be in the, the garden in communion with one another, naked and unashamed. But then after they eat, we see that the, now they're ashamed. In verse 7, they knew that they were naked and they, they, they felt ashamed. And what do they do? What's their response? They close themselves. That's the important part to see. It says that they make it themselves. They cover their shame. By their own hands, they try to cover their shame. They try to make right what has been wronged. And then we see that fellowship with God has been lost in verse 8. And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. So once they were in perfect communion with God in his his place in the garden, and now they're hiding. They're hiding behind the created order. They're hiding behind the trees uh, in the garden. The communion has been lost. The fellowship with God has been lost. Something has gone wrong. And then in verse 14, God addresses the serpent. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And then we see the gracious promise of Genesis 3.15. And this will be what carries us throughout the scriptures. Is I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. It's the first declaration of God's redemptive purposes after the fall. It's a covenant of redemption. Again, I would, I would argue that this is a covenant that God is, is committing himself to act on their behalf. That God is committing himself to crush Satan. That he will crush his head. One writer says that in seed form, every basic principle which manifests itself in the gospel and manifests itself sub subsequently throughout the scripture is here in Genesis 3.15. And that's what we're going to see as we, as we study biblical theology for the next six weeks. We're going to see that truth, that what happens here in the garden, the promise that God makes to Adam and Eve in the garden, that he would one day undo the curse, this is what will carry throughout the rest of Scripture, God's covenant with Adam. So the stage is set for this cosmic drama that will unfold in redemptive history. And that's how we can see the Scriptures in one sense, is that it's this cosmic drama of God coming to redeem a people. The sovereign creator commits himself to crushing Satan by the seed of the woman. And then what does he do? If someone will read verse 21. 
What's the significance of this? To kill something, so atonement, blood atonement. What else do we see? God's the one doing it. So we're already seeing atonement. And we're going to see atonement carried throughout the scriptures. We see it clearly in the, the Levitical priesthood and in Leviticus. We see the day of atonement. We see so much, so much bloodshed throughout the Old Testament. But ultimately, we see that it's God who will be doing this. They tried to do it themselves. They tried to, to cover themselves, but it was insufficient. They need a covering from God. And all of these coverings in the Old Testament, they're pointing to the covering that we truly need, which is Christ's blood shed on our behalf. And so all of these are just shadows pointing to the substance, which is Christ, which we talked about last week. And the victory of God's people will ultimately be through God's judgment of Satan. That God will judge Satan, and God's people will be victorious. And so at the cross, we see both that, that Christ will take God's judgment that God's wrath will be poured out upon Christ and that his blood will be shed, but also Satan will be undone. That God will, will reign and be victorious. And we see this carried throughout the scripture as we see the two seeds battling against one another, battling against each other, Satan's seed nipping at the heels of the godly line of God's people as God continues to sustain a remnant throughout redemptive history. And so in this act of pronouncing this curse in relation to the fall, God is inaugurating redemptive history. He chooses to bind himself to one day undo what has been lost. What's been lost to man's disobedience will one day be restored through God's divine initiative. But along the way, there'll be continued warfare between the seed of Satan and the seed of God. But Satan at the heels of God is nothing compared to what God will do to him. I had a coworker who used to be deathly afraid of dogs. And so anytime we were out and about and there was a dog, he would literally hide behind other grown men. And he was a grown man himself. And so it didn't matter the size either. It could be a pit bull or it could be like a teacup Pomeranian. He would hide. And so he would always tell us there was something really bad that happened when I was younger. And so, of course, as grown men, we really wanted to know this story. And we continued to press him and, and make fun of him to try to get him to tell us this story of, of what happened. Why are you so afraid of dogs that you would, would put yourself out there and hide behind other grown men? You know, what, what happened? This must be an amazing story. So finally, after years of, of pressuring him, he comes to tell us this story of what happened uh, with, with a dog when he was young. And he tells a story that... He had just recently got a new bike, and he was excited to ride his bike around the neighborhood. And he's riding around the neighborhood, and then here comes a dog. And so we start asking the size of the dog. Well, how big is this dog then? You know, we're, we're trying to figure out what, what really happened. And, well, you know, it wasn't that big. And so we start like, you know, how about this big? And, and it ended up being a pretty small dog. And he's starting to tell the story, and we're, you know, we're already starting to laugh a little bit. And he says this dog starts coming after him. And we're thinking, all right, it must have knocked him off the bike and just really started mauling him. He probably got bit pretty bad. And no, that's not what happened. He starts saying that his dog starts barking at him, and he's getting really scared. And he's young, so he can't get away from the dog. And the dog's nipping at his heels. And so we're asking him, did the dog bite you? He, no, the dog didn't bite me. So, so he, didn't, it, he didn't actually make contact. No, he didn't. And so we're, we're just thinking to ourselves, how, how is this your traumatic story that has caused you so much grief for all these years? And uh, it didn't help that he told that story, obviously, to us. Um, but at the end of the day, that, that's what Satan is doing to God's people. He's nipping at their heels. Nothing more than that. 
And though, though Satan will have victories along the way, ultimately it will be God that will crush his head. There's no comparison between the two. That, Satan cru- that God crushing Satan's head is of no comparison to what Satan will do to God's seed along the way. And so what I want to do is, is pick up that theme throughout scriptures to look at some of the texts of where the biblical authors recognize that this is going to happen. They allude to it. They recognize that, that God is going to do this great work through the crushing of Satan. So if you will, turn with me to Joshua 10 first. Joshua 10. We'll be in, in uh, 10, 24, and 25. What's interesting, Joshua 10, is I talked about Joshua 9, where the Gibeonites come, they bind themselves to Israel, to God's people, through a covenant so that they could be saved. But right before that, Joshua had just renewed the covenant with the people. So again, we have this covenant language all, all throughout 9, 10, uh, and then in 11, or in, I'm sorry, in 10, we see what's happening here, what we're about to get into. Um, but the reality is that Israel had been called to come into the land to to kill the, the wicked people in this land. It was God's judgment they would be executing. And I would argue that Joshua understood Genesis 3.15 by what he does in verses 24 through 25. So if someone will read verses 24 through 25 of chapter 10. So they take all the kings of the wicked nations, again, the seed of Satan, literally. They take them, they put them on the ground, and they put them under feet. And they put their feet on their necks, right, that head region. They're, they're putting their feet on their necks. They're putting them underfoot. And Joshua is reminding them, he's calling them to be courageous because he recognizes God's promises. He recognizes what God is doing, that God is bringing them into the land that God is going to undo the curses. And so Joshua understands this, and his actions show it, that he understood Genesis 3.15. Paul picks this idea up in Romans 16, verse 20. You don't need to turn there, but Paul says, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. So again, this idea of Satan being crushed under their feet, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. So he's reminding the church in Rome of the certainty of Satan's defeat. Again, pointing back to Genesis 3.15, much like what Joshua is doing. Then when we look at David and Goliath, David strikes him on the forehead, and then the text reads, the stone sinks into his forehead, and then he falls face first onto the ground, and then David cuts off his head. So you see forehead, forehead, face, head. So four references to the head region, whether it's the head or the forehead, within just a handful of verses. And so again, I think that the biblical authors are picking up on these themes, recognizing that God will crush Satan underfoot. And then turn with me, we'll turn to the Psalms. We even see this in the Psalms. Turn to Psalm 110 to start. So 
Psalm 110 is a psalm of David. It's a messianic psalm. We actually sang uh, a song last Sunday based upon Psalm 110. So someone will read Psalm 110, verse 1. So what's going to happen to the enemies? They'll be underfoot again. So again, this idea of, of the enemies will be under the foot, and ultimately they'll be under the foot of the Davidic king is what's happening here. And then as we skip forward to Psalm 110, verse 5, the Lord is at your right hand, and he will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way, therefore he will lift up his head. So the Davidic king's head will be exalted. But the king of the nations, they will be shattered. And actually, does someone have a footnote for verse 6 where it says shattered chiefs? What's the footnote? Or the head. Or the head. So again, this idea that the biblical authors understood Genesis 3.15. And we could look at many more. I do want to look at one more real quick. If we look at Psalm 91, there's some irony in Psalm 91 in regards to the crushing of Satan. If someone will read verses 11 through 13 of Psalm 91, 11 through 13. I said that this was ironic. Who in the New Testament uses this passage? Satan does. Satan does it, the temptation of Jesus. He uses this passage about commanding the angels. But what's interesting is in verse 13, it talks about the fact that, that you will tread on the lion and the adder, the serpent, the young lion, the serpent will trample underfoot. So the serpent will be trampled underfoot. So that's why it's so ironic that Satan is using this passage that's referring back to the fact that Satan will ultimately be trampled underfoot. And then in Revelation 20, verses 2 through 3, we don't need to turn there, but he, it says, And he sees the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him, so that he may not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while, and then ultimately we know he will be in the pit forever and ever but the reality is, again, John is pointing forward to that day where Satan will ultimately be trampled underfoot, the ancient serpent. So we see this language pointing back to that serpent in the garden. And again, there's so many more passages that we could go to, seeing the, the trampling of Satan, the serpent underfoot, all these types of references, head. Uh, there's many references throughout the Old Testament of the wicked seed and something happening to their head, them being crushed in the head. And that ultimately is the hope of Genesis 3.15, that one day Satan will be trampled underfoot. But none of this would happen apart from God's direct intervention. It's God's intervention that's causing this. In eating of the fruit, Satan and man actually unite in our opposition against God. 
yet God intervenes to pull us out of the clutches of Satan. That's what happens in the garden is we side with Satan in rebellion against God. So apart from God establishing his relationship with us, this covenant relationship with us, there would be no hope after the fall. We would be a hopeless people. Deserving nothing but death. But it's this death that prepares us for the gospel. Understanding the death that occurred in the garden prepares us for the hope of the gospel. Prepares us as we move through redemptive history, understanding exactly what Christ is going to do at the cross. So the garden gives us a proper understanding of our own rebellion and sinfulness. It gives us a proper understanding of who we are in light of who God is. And understanding his graciousness in establishing his covenant relationship with us. So the garden sets the stage for the entire scriptures as they progress. It paints a picture of a gracious and loving God. And along the way, as we watch this story unfold, we're going to see it unfold through this covenant relationship. And hopefully it, makes the, hopefully it makes the narrative of Scripture more clear to you as we do this study. But ultimately, it's, it's driving us forward to the new covenant. All of these covenants are building and driving us forward to that new covenant, to the greater Adam, who's Jesus Christ. That's exactly how Paul refers to him in Romans 5. The greater Adam will come. He'll come just like Adam as a representative. He will be a representative for us on our behalf, a representative head, a covenantal head. But unlike Adam, he will live by God's word alone. He will live in obedience. He will live by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. But all of this starts in the garden. And so as we continue our study, we're going to see the goodness of God and the sovereignty of his plans as we watch his plans unfold through the covenants. We'll go ahead and close there for tonight. Does anyone have any questions before we close? All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you for the goodness of the gospel. The fall reminds us of our sinfulness and our rebellion. It reminds us that apart from your sovereign act of redemption, we would be hopeless, Lord. And we thank you that you acted on our behalf, Lord, that you made a covenant of redemption with your people, Lord, that you sent your son to die on our behalf to establish the new covenant so that we could be washed clean and cleansed from our filthiness, Lord. We thank you for the goodness of the gospel, and we pray that as we continue the study, Lord, that we would again just be in awe of your goodness and your unfolding plan, and we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.